Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On our show today, we're going to be talking about tonic, both tonic in music and tonic as a mixer. Of course, that means that the show is going to involve gin, which in my opinion, if you're drinking gin before happy hour, you're winning. Winning, big time. <laughs> and also, we were going to do a separate episode on garnish, both literally and figuratively, and we decided this is a perfect opportunity to combine two topics, so tonic and garnish today on Scores and Pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month or as much as you'd like on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. You'll also find a full playlist and a wine list or a tonic list and gin list today. We would appreciate if you would leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. What's up, Emily Reese? What up, Jill Mott? How's it going? I'm win- like I mentioned in the intro today. I'm winning. Winning. We, we are winning. We're so winning. We get to taste gin and well, drink gin really mm-hmm. before happy hour. But it's not all about gin today. Today we're talking about tonic mm-hmm. as a mixer, and in the classical music realm, Emily mentioned she really wanted to do a show on tonic, like musical tonic, and what that is. And I was like, well. I can talk about tonic water all flipping day. Yeah. As much as I love the gin and tonic, gin's just half of the program. And really, it's only a third of the program, (laughs) if we're speaking literally, you know. Um, And then we also wanted to do a garnish episode. Yeah. Talk about, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about garnish in music. And thusly in, you know, in cocktails too. Beverages, yeah. But... I decided to keep it simple and just kind of talk about the garnish in the gin and tonic and how important it is, also how overblown it is. Mm -hmm. And then we thought, well, this is just, this is ridiculous to have two episodes, tonic and garnish. We might as well just have a show called Tonic and Garnish. Beautiful, because they go so well together. They really do. I mean, any, any music that we listen to, I can talk about tonic. So I can talk about tonic any time, you know. So and you've it mentioned works. it in several episodes. Oh, for sure. And you've yeah. given a quick little, and this is what it is. Mm-hmm. But like now we're going to go into more depth. So should yeah. we just like go? Can yeah. Just jump in. Let's do it. Tonic, the musical kind. <laughs> That's what I put in my notes. <laughs> um, so <laughs> tonic, tonic is. I'm just shaking my head over here. This is why she kept laughing. I was just like, really? Just let's yeah. go. So if we're <laughs> sorry, <laughs> so it's true. So if we're in C major, tonic is C. If we're in A flat minor, tonic is A flat. If we're in F half diminished Phrygian, whatever the hell, tonic is F. You know, so mm-hmm. so that's uh, one of the fastest ways. More specifically, when we talk about tonic, we're talking about the first degree of whatever scale is at hand. So we talk about scale degrees. If we say a C major scale. C, D, E are the first three notes. You'll hear them. We could also say one, two, three. Yep. So scale degree one is tonic. We could also name those notes using uh, terminology called solfege, do, re, mi. Therefore, tonic is do. Okay? Um, it's well, like... Can you... can you? Because to me, that also... One thing, when you look at a couple different music sites, including something as easy as like Wiki, mm-hmm. it, they say it's not to be confused with the root, 
which to me that sounds like the root. So oh. how is it different than the root? Well, because a root is whatever tonality you're in. So in, in a piece of music, it's almost never, if we're in C major, going to stay in C major the entire time. That would be just completely bizarre. So you're going to have F major and A minor and E minor and D minor. As you and, move throughout the yeah, piece. Yeah, there's going to be all these little times where maybe you make people think we're in G major for a half a minute, and then we go back to C major. So all of those chords have their own root. Mm -hmm. So if measure four is an F major chord, the root of that chord is F. So, but we're not, but tonic but isn't F because the whole piece is in C. Oh, okay. So it's what the okay. whole piece yeah, is yep. in. So it's like the house. The, okay. It's like the structure of the house is C major. And then each little room as you move through the house or you move through listening of the piece, we have different moods oh. and different chords and scales and things, but we're still in C. Okay. Okay. Or whatever. F minor, whatever. It could, could okay. be any number of things. So. One way that tonic can work, doesn't always work out this beautifully, but sometimes you can sing tonic through a whole piece of music and it sounds good. It sounds mostly consonant, we would say. And is, Pleasing. It, and is it fair to say in layman's terms that it's like the musical center yeah. of a piece? Yes. Okay. Yes. So in the late 80s, I remember exactly where I was and exactly what song I was hearing when I figured out that there was a note that you could sing through the whole piece and it sounded good. And it was like, it clicked in my head. I'm like, oh, that's what that is. So, and it's funny because it's a Paul Simon song from the Graceland album. Yeah, And we're going to hear it. So this is, a, this is a, a tune on that album called Under African Skies, which is a duet that Paul Simon sings with Linda Rodstadt, which is also amazing. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And you'll notice that the... There's a note that just sounds like home, and you can hum that note through the whole damn song, and it sounds great. Even though the key changes, as even it though were. we move yeah. around and move yep. about, part of it is because of the way the bass line goes. There are a lot of contributing factors for why this works really well with this piece in specific, because there are a lot of pieces it works well with. But let's just have a listen to it. Yeah. So if you were to sing, guess what tonic? Yep. Let's wait till let's wait till the we key will. changes. His well, it doesn't. That's why it works so well with this too. But does this key? Does the, do they ever go into a bridge or into something, or is it just like this all the way through? It's pretty much this one, four, five, four oh, okay. thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. This is the story of how we begin to remember. So it's a really good little tiny song to demonstrate how well that can work, where you can find there's a home base that's very clear. It's not always that clear, but it's often that clear. So, um, yeah. So I've got another example, and we'll listen. Any questions so far? <laughs> nope. That seems quite easy, a lot easier than I thought. Yeah. I think it's going to get a bit more interesting when we get to the handle. Yes. And I don't mean the Instagram handle. I mean yeah. the actual handle. Which the, is the at man. Scores and Pours, by the way. Before we drink, 
I would like to specify, because we talked in our bitter episode very briefly about quinine. Mm -hmm. Um, It was more about what bitter is, and then we talked about you know, bitters actually like the the droplets that you can add to a cocktail or to your soda water. We talked about Campari and Chinar and things like that. We very briefly talked about tonic, mm-hmm. but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth into quinine and tonic because it's really quite interesting. If I were to ask most people, I think they would know what tonic water is, right? It's it's quinine with a sweetener and most of the time like soda water, right? Yeah. And Later, I should say, carbonated water, because before it was probably a bit more still, like back in the 1800s, but we'll get there. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Quinine comes from the chinchona bark, which um, hails from Peru, but it is it is found in very different, in different species throughout Latin America and South America. The first time it was actually isolated, like quinine was isolated outside of the chinchona bark itself was in like the first part of the 1800s, like 1820s, 1830s, but its uses and its ability to thwart off uh, fevers, malaria, chills, things like that was known as far back as the 1600s and actually was in the 1500s, I think it had been brought via Spanish missionaries, Jesuits from Latin America to Spain and then subsequently kind of throughout Europe. Um, so we've, we've known about quinine slash chinchona bark being, I don't think that they called it quinine back in those days. It was known as chinchona, okay. um, which is actually the, the national tree of Peru. Um, but chinchona bark, its purposes and its medicinal aspects have been known for hundreds of years. We fast forward to the time of the British Raj, so we're in the 1800s, okay. and we have the officials of the, the British Raj. They realized that the taste of quinine during that time, obviously, malaria was very prevalent. And they realized that if they mixed it with some sugar, the powder with some sugar, and diluted it with water, it would that's the way they would take it. Of course, then, you know, put some gin in it, and then it becomes all the more tolerable. Um, Back in the day, it was much stronger, that actual, just that little solution. The flavor, Was way more potent than it is now. Hmm. I think in order to get your daily dose of the amount of quinine they were taking in order to thwart malaria, we would need to have 67 gin and tonics nowadays <laughs> to have that same amount of quinine in our system. So that's how much more potent it wow. was to have a few of those a day. Um, yeah. It was just like utterly, I mean, you definitely needed to spike it with some sugar, <laughs> dilute it, put some gin in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, they added the the lime kind of as a garnish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just kind of fast forward because why not? We're in a historical place right now. The, the garnish of the lime, limes, they do help uh, prevent if you have enough of them, scurvy. Mm -hmm. And so that was just sort of like, well, put. I mean, it's a health drink. I think Winston Churchill said like a gin and tonic a day keeps a doctor away or something (laughs) like that, which is like- Also naps. He was a napper, 20 minutes every day. I mean, the dude is kind of great in a a few regards. Yeah, so that's just a quick history of quinine and tonic water itself. Tonic water, the first commercial tonic water ever produced was uh, in 1871. So we've had tonic water for that long, and I'll talk more about that when we get closer to drinking that specific tonic water, because we have it today on Scores and Pours. Lastly, before we go into more music, 
what's cool is there's there are plenty of bitter things in the world, right? We've got dark chocolate, we've got all kinds of different spirits, we've got coffee, we've got, you know, just, I could go on so many different, this is not a podcast about those things. <laughs> but of course you have quinine, and quinine is, I mentioned this in our bitters episode, it's the base to measure bitterness the world over. Quinine has a, in a, what we would call, and I think I said parts per million in our previous episode, I, I correct myself, because it's 8U with a capital M, and that stands for um, like 8 micromolar. So 8 micromolars is the equivalent of 1. 1 okay. unit to measure bitter. And so there are things in this world that are like a 1,000 of those sure. units yeah. that obviously we can't ingest because they're so bitter. Yeah. Um, and wow. 8UM, think of this, for those of you that know milliliters, you, you work with cocktails, is the equivalent of 0. 0.000008 milliliters. Oh, wow. So that's how strong yeah. quinine or chinchona quinine is in its very raw state. Neat. Which is why it tastes so good in gin. Just balances it out <laughs> with the right amount of suga. Love it. I know. Yum. So now that we are, have that base yep. for tonic, yeah. Quechuan people of Peru have been using chinchona bark to cure ales them for centuries. Spanish missionaries, the Jesuits in particular, r- responsible for bringing that knowledge to what we would consider the old world, Europe. And then, I mean, in its current form as a tonic water, uh, we have the British Raj to thank for that and the whole gin and tonic in and of itself. Good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thanks, officers. Yes. Uh, can we handle? I feel like that's a good yes. segue to f- keep going on tonic. Yeah. One quick note, when I was talking about do re mi earlier and how tonic is always dough, that's only the case in the U.S. There are other countries where that's not the case. So, But just for our purposes, that's what I meant when I said that. This handle example I really, really like because... He, first of all, it's just a really great little piece by George Friedrich Handel, who lived in the Baroque era. He was born in 1685 and died in 1759. Um, and in 1720, he wrote a little suite for keyboard, which is just a multi-movement work for a solo keyboard, harpsichord in this instance. But we're, we're going to hear a piano version. Um, and his suite number five in E major has four movements, and the fourth movement is a really famous little piece of music that Handel wrote called, that now has a nickname called the Harmonious Blacksmith. And so we're just going to hear this. It starts with the pianist playing tonic right off the bat. So he just plays that E, and then you hear this little melody in E major. Can I do the same E that, like, the different one when we were listening to Linda Ronstadt, Paul Simon, and we were mm-hmm. like, la, can I, yep. here, can I, na, is that, is that yep, E? Yep, you can. Na, so does that happen throughout this whole movement that you can sort of keep your E going? Yep. Cool. Yeah. And even if it didn't, that's where it would be at the end. Okay. We would always come back to it. Okay. Now, it, in this piece, it works a lot like the Paul Simon one, where you can pretty much sing E the whole way through. Okay. 
but there are pieces that obviously stray away, but then they always come back home. Always, almost always. There are very few exceptions before 1900 where that's not the case. Okay, that was going to be my next question Mm -hmm. then, because like the Romantic era, French stuff, because that's not always tonic. It's, It's sometimes hard to find, right? Or it's like... It might be hard to find... It's still going to be there, and it's still going to be where everything starts and ends. Okay. Yeah. Um, It does, though you are correct to say that it becomes hard to kind of stick with because things kind of go all over the place. Um, But still, uh, even I think all of Mahler's symphonies except for one, you know, if it's symphony in X minor, then it's going to start and end there. I mean, even an hour and a half long symphony. We're going to start in that key and we're going to end in that key. Interesting. Almost all the time. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Tonic. So something that starts and ends on a certain note, and that's usually home bass, Mm -hmm. and it sometimes can be sung throughout a whole piece, but sometimes not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Tonic. Yeah. Well, should we go taste some tonics? Yes, I would love to. All right. Before we got to making a gin and tonic, we would taste the artisanal, somewhat artisanal, and definitely not artisanal tonic side by side, and to do that in that same order so we can taste actually how sweet the last one gets. Um, The first one, and I guess I'll just pour in a couple different glasses here, give this a taste, Emily. So this is Q Tonic. They were, it's an independent company out of Brooklyn, New York. They have been around since 2006. Mm. And Jordan Silbert, really cool guy, he was having some gin and tonics with some friends and back in the earlier part of, of last decade, and he had, you know, he loved Tangeray. They were drinking a nice bottle of Tangeray, and they had, like, Schweppes or something like that, plastic bottle that, like, you know, I, I think they were pretty in it. And, like, the moon was, like, glowing. As the story goes, the moon was, like, glowing on the Tangeray bottle, and they were all, like, sharing great stories, and all of a sudden they, like, he looked to the side and his teeth were all sticky and he like saw the bottle of tonic and the label was kind of falling off and he's like why can't there be good tonics out there to like go with this great gin and so now he's got a company that makes really artisanal non-gmo certified tonics and ginger beers and whatever so carbonated water obviously is the first ingredient organic agave there's a little citric acid for balance quinine natural flavors Natural flavors, don't know why that needs to be in there, but I think it, you know, some, even if you're using real lemongrass or real lavender, sometimes I think you have to natural flavors. Anyway, Hmm. in one can, which this can here is almost eight ounces, we have 11 grams of sugar. From the agave? Agave? Coming from the... Coming from the the organic agave, yep. Okay. It's so refreshing. It's so delicious. Does it seem that sweet? It's kind mm-hmm. of charged, you know? They really He wants mm-hmm. it to be almost overly carbonated because he's yeah. like, I don't want my tonic water to be dilute and yeah. not refreshing after I, it's my gin and tonic's been sitting there 20 minutes. Yep. Next, we'll go to also a still independent company called Fentimins. They're out of the far northern regions of England. Actually, I think the county borders 
think it's called Hex, Hexamen or something like that. The county borders Scotland. They've been around since 1905. Um, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Fentiman. He invented this company for ginger beer. The company went under, needless to say, a few you know decades ago, whenever the 60s, 80s. I don't remember. His great grandson rekindled the business. They have a. Fr- they call it a brewery because they actually do have fermented. Some of their botanicals are fermented. You'll notice this smells a little bit more like what we're used to. Yeah. You'll notice that the sugar level is. Somewhat similar. It almost seems like less, but it's also a bit more bitter. It's almost like ginger ale. Right? Well, so listen to all that's in here. So in here, we have carbonated water, of course, beet sugar, glucose syrup, fructose, citric acid, natural flavors, quinine, herbal infusions, juniper berry, kefir lime leaves, fermented botanical extracts like pear juice, concentrate, juniper berry, kefir lime leaves, and lemongrass. So there's kind of a, a lot in here that makes for a pretty complex little guy. We have for sugar levels, we have 18 grams of sugar for just slightly more than nine ounces in here. So the Whoa. one ounce difference, we're getting seven grams more of sugar. Now taste these side by side. Cutonic. Cutonic. The cutonic is so simple. It's like in the mm. right ways. Yep. Yeah. And very light. Yeah. And yeah, that literally tastes, you can taste the fructose syrup. You can taste that like soda pop syrup in there. Well, I think what that is, to me, that's the lemongrass and the kefir lime leaves. Okay. They kind of make it like that Do almost they? Yeah, I don't know. I don't chemically, know. but not. Okay. That's kind of because usually glucose, fructose, and beet sugar are almost flavorless, hmm. is what I've heard from people that oh, okay. do mixing and stuff oh, like that. There you go. But taste this now. This is crazy. So now we've got Schweppes. Schweppes is there, depending on what nation, or I should say maybe what side of the globe you're on. If you're in the you know, the Americas, it's owned by PepsiCo. And if you're in Europe, um, it's owned. Schweppes is owned by Coca-Cola. And so quite industrial. Uh, they're the oldest creator of tonics. I mentioned 1783 was the first time that they created a tonic water. Back then, it was known as the Republic of Geneva, so they were in present-day Switzerland, and a gentleman by the name of Johann Jacob Schwepp decided to <laughs> go on an endeavor to make carbonated mineral water. That's how this started. Actually, I, I stand corrected. 1783 was when he was on his mineral water endeavor, and in 1871 was when the first carbonated tonic water okay. commercially came out onto the market. So get a load. Just the carbonation wow. is like... <laughs> so now this for a serving size is 12 ounces here. So now we have a little bit more in our, in our size of, a say, a, a pour than either of these other tonics. But we have 33 grams of sugar in 12 ounces. So almost twice that of the... The bottle of Fentimins. It is very sweet. And it leaves that film in the back of the throat. So what's in this guy? Water. You guessed it. High fructose corn syrup. Citric acid. Sodium benzoate as a preservative. Quinine. Natural flavors. And then, of course, produced under the authority of Dr. Pepper 7-Up Incorporated. So now let's taste them side by side again. Yeah. And maybe kind of do like a quick little boop, boop, boop. Q? Q. It's so delicious. And this is... It's literally quinine water. 
Yeah. Like that's what it tastes like. We're not getting all fluffy with all kinds yeah. of fermented botanicals, although I love me some fentamins sometimes. Just notice I can the taste the lemon for sure. Just notice the sweetness level. Yeah. On the tip of the tongue, how progressively sweeter they get. Yep. Isn't that crazy? Yes. That is crazy. I yes, have, scores and pours. Scores and pours. <laughs> I actually like, I thought I was going to like despise the Schweppes because I usually, hmm. if I go to like a bar up north, which I don't obviously know, but if I, when I was going to bars up north, once in a blue moon, instead of a beer, I'd get a gin and tonic or something at the end of a night or after a heavy meal or something. And I haven't for years up there because they use gun, which gun anything up north Look out! Like, <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, not gun. Like you know, soda gun, soda yeah, gun, right? Yeah. So Coca Cola, whatever. Yeah. And Schweppes is just so gross out of a gun. It's just those lines have never been cleaned. That it's just like tastes like Coca Cola meets Lord knows what, and it's syrupy. Yeah. And if they're not making calibrating so that the soda water to the ratio of syrup is right, you're just that's just a gross no. Yeah. Okay. But I tasting it here out of the bottle. I don't love it. No, it's not terrible. It's not terrible. Yeah. Which I'm kind of happy about that. Out of all three of them, do you have a preference? Oh, the Q for sure. The Q, it's just so simple. Q tonic, it's so simple and just, yeah. Well, stand by because we're about to make some gin and tonics after yes. we start perhaps getting into some garnish. Or garnish. should we wait on garnish? Let's wait on garnish. We, so can we have wait a cocktail. On garnish. I mean, I don't have any more to talk about tonic. I. We'll crank up three gin and tonics made exactly the same way with one of my favorite gins from Catalonia in Spain, northeastern Spain, called Gin Mare. Gin Mare is made out of, obviously there's some juniper, but there's some arbequina olives and basil and rosemary. It's very pretty. There's some thyme in there. So we're going to do a two-to-one ratio. Uh, tonic water to gin. Oh, I was hoping it was the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at midnight, yeah. no. And we'll make very small ones so that we can go tasting what we think. And then out of our favorite, we're going to play with garnish. Yes. Sounds good? Yeah. Joe Mott just made the most adorable little baby gin and tonics, three of them, out of these three delicious tonics that we're trying. So we did the gin mare. Uh, we did 15 milliliters, so about a, about a half an ounce, just a little bit less than that in each. And then we did um, a full ounce and just a, maybe a touch more of each tonic water. So And we didn't do any garnish because we just want to taste these clean as a whistle before we decide... Which one we prefer to, let's be honest, make a fullsies out of, come on, <laughs> to play with garnish. Well, actually, we should do mini yeah, couple with with different garnishes. Different, of course. All right. So here, I'm going to take a quick sip of the Q-tonic, and so are you. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. I mean. It just tastes like, it. I, what I love about the Q-tonic is just a vessel. Yeah. To get, it's like ancient ways of thinking. Yeah. I want to drink gin, and I don't want to drink gin straight. Yeah. <laughs> How can I make that the <laughs> most beautiful experience? Mm -hmm. You really do get the essence of the gin. Yes. Which I like. All right. You ready for the fentimins? Yes. Whoa. Too much lemongrass. It's just so different. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Le very, yeah. Like, would I drink one? Sure. Yep. Would I pay $20 for my gin in that gin and tonic that I get at Marvel Bar that's no longer extant, but I used to? <laughs> no, not really. 
I, I mean, it's delicious, though. Mm-hmm. What about the sweetness level? Let's go back and forth on that situation. Well, the Q-tonic is just, there's no sweetness obscuring anything. It's just perfection. It is perfection. I'm kind of surprised. And then you get to the Fentimans. No, no harm meant here, but it's just, it's just not right. It's a little too much. I think the botanicals, I don't mind the sweetness. It's a little more. I don't mind that, but it's a little much. It tastes like a new car smells to me. Okay. I can see that for sure. Okay. Last but not least. Schweppes. I mean, that just tastes like three quarters of my college. Just kidding. Again, not bad. None of them are bad, but I mean. It's so sweet. It's so sweet. You just, it's like, just, it tastes like a cheap mixed drink. Well, now go back and do Q-tonic. Yeah, I mean, the Q-tonic is just so clean and light that it's just, it it does, it highlights the gin. And so granted, it would would I do a Schweppes here and there? Sure, would I here do a Schweppes? Sh- there are Schweppes. But not everywhere are Schweppes Schweppes. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just, <laughs> it's just going to be too much after, you know, one, you know, you probably don't want a second. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like having three PBRs. That's not a smart decision. Okay, well, so are we unanimously saying that the Q-tonic is, it's my favorite it's of the three? It's my favorite, yeah. What's your second favorite? That's tough, because I really am, am, I would be happy to try the Fentimans in some other kind of cocktail mixture. I don't know how many other cocktails tonic water is in, but I... Quite a few, yeah, okay. there are some, yeah. I'd be willing to try it with other things, but I'm not, I, I probably could really flip a coin between that and the Schweppes. And I think what one thing, you know, I'm using Gin Mare instead of a Tangeray. Tangerays are way more juniper forward. Mm. Um, and if you're using a Tangeray and something like a Fentimans, it could maybe stand up to each other. You know, they could right. stand up to each other. Yep. Whereas using Gin Mare that's super delicate allows for, you know, the tonic water also to really be present in a way like you're going to notice what you don't like out mm-hmm. of the tonic waters. Sure. Right, so should we make a slightly bigger yeah. <laughs> gin mare yes. for each of us? And then we'll be right back with Q-Tonic to talk about some garnish. Yes. Okay. So I just asked Emily, I was like, why didn't we garnish talk musically before we garnished our gin and tonics? And I was just overzealous to keep <laughs> tasting gin, I think, uh, with these garnishes. Because So what we did was super simple. And the reason I kept it this way was we will include a couple of photographs uh, that are beautiful photographs. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the cocktails are delicious. But they're gin and tonics the world over right now. You go into a place and they either give you a lime wedge the size of your head in your gin and tonic. Gianna- or you get a gin and tonic that is got rosemary, peppercorns, hibiscus leaves, a twist of grapefruit rind, a twist of lemon rind, and you're like smiling at your date with a peppercorn or thyme leaf <laughs> in your mouth and you, it's hard to drink. And it's then you don't even, the $30 gin and tonic you just paid for, which maybe it's only like $15, but you paid money for like nice gin and you can't even really taste the essence of this gin. It's just a bells and whistles. So we, what we did, we took same measurement, one-third gin, two-thirds tonic, Q-tonic, gin mare still, and we did a twist of lemon, which is my personal favorite, a twist of lime, a lime wedge, and a lemon wedge mm-hmm. to see 
what we prefer. So, so shall we? Yes. Um, should we do the, let's maybe do the lightest first, the little twist okay. of lemon. Emily was my garnish queen. She was like, <laughs> I was like, squeeze it, keep squeezing, get all that juice out of there. I mean, all day, mm. as, as we would say. Yep. All day. All day. Refreshing. So we've got that guy. Now let's go on to the, the lime twist. See right away, I love the nose, mm -hmm. but the nose just makes it only smell like lime. The palate's delicious, but I only smell lime. Do you not agree? I don't know. Let me smell the lemon one again. I mean, our, my fingers, I don't know about your fingers, kind of reek like citrus right yeah, now. Yeah, that's so. true. <laughs> okay, so we got twists. Mm -hmm, Maybe mm -hmm. now let's do the, the lemon wedge. Okay. See? Now we get too lemon juicy. Yeah. Now taste that next to the lemon twist. Yeah, the twist is way better. Right? Just like... <laughs> it's just that a little was, hint. That was for uh, Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah, just a hint. You can still taste your gin, your tonic. Mm -hmm. All right, now let's go from lime wedge to lime twist. Okay. Just like chugging gin tonics <laughs> over here. <laughs> They're little baby ones. I mean, it's almost less offensive than the lime wedge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm a twist person, man, all day. Like, I all just, day. I don't yeah. mind it. And if someone's going to give me, a, if I'm going to go over to a friend's house and they're going to be like, do you want me to make you a gin and tonic so you don't have to make it because you <laughs> always make all the drinks and I want to garnish it with a lime wedge, I'm going to be like, thank you. Please do. Yeah. I have been known to be like, do you happen to have a lemon <laughs> in your fridge? <laughs> but I'm learning to not do that. And I was out of the four, preference. I do like the lime better, the lime twist. Interesting. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so you like the lime twist. I do, yeah. I like either the lime wedge yeah. or the lemon twist. Yeah. Like I, you know, I think that the... Lemon wedge was a little bit too just like lemon juicy. Yeah, 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 um, definitely. But this is just to go to show you, keep your garnishes simple with a gin and tonic and with all cocktails. You know, like I've been yeah. known to, I think I'm on about 74 tiki drinks that I've made for <laughs> friends and myself over the course of the summer. I am keeping track, BTW. And they're always like a pineapple slice, an in-season cherry. Yeah. Just do one thing, a little bit of coconut on the top, just some shaved coconut with, you know, maybe glazed in maple if that's what you've got. But just like to have, to do like 17 things sticking out of it just really takes away from you and I have had, because I was showing you as we were prepping for the garnish episode, we did a gin tonic made with Q tonic, we did gin mare, and we had basil leaves. Why? Because mm -hmm. the, the gin is made with basil, but we had one. Yeah. Sticking out of the glass. We didn't have like, then we didn't have lemon, we didn't have lime. Yeah. And it was like perfect. And it wasn't overly basil y either. No, they were all. small leaves. Yeah. They just kind of accented the nose a little bit. You mm -hmm. could still taste all that was going on in the gin. Yeah. Right. I'm done talking for the entirety of this episode. That's not I'm true. I'm going to drink gin. <laughs> yes, it is true. Talk to us about garnishes and glockenspiels. Please. <laughs> I chose two of, in my opinion, some of the most charming instruments that can appear in an orchestra, the celesta and the glockenspiel. They both sound fairly similar, uh, but they're very different because a celesta looks like a little tiny piano keyboard, basically. It's just a handful of octaves, and it looks like a, just literally like a miniature piano with sits on a little cabinet. A glockenspiel looks like a xylophone or something, just tiny, right? So glockenspiel is a flat set of bells that are struck with mallets, 
as you know a drummer would strike a instrument. Uh, but a, a celesta, since it looks like a little tiny piano, is played like a piano. And we will include a link that is incredible. This woman's playing, you know, she plays the beginning of the Nutcracker Suite that we've all heard a gazillion times. But throughout her video, there's a point where she shows how it works. And yeah. it's a really cool video for those of you who are just interested in, in the, the, you know, just the work. How the mechanics of the work. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The uh, patent for the celesta happened in 1886, a man named Victor Moustel. He's a French inventor. Celesta in French means heavenly, and mm. that's what this sounds like. Very, It's uh, kind of has that role of either, um, you know, celestial kind of sounds yeah. or kind of creepy sounds too, maybe a little mischievous or I always feel spooky. like it sounds like weather. Interesting. It sounds to me like snow falling. It always reminds me of snow falling oh, first. Wow. Huh. I never think of this music as sounding like summer, like a summer morning. It mm-hmm. always sounds like something falling from sure. the heavens, perhaps. I can completely understand that. Maybe it's just because I remember it most from whenever I hear that song. It reminds me of Home Alone. Oh, <laughs> and funny. It snows the Nutcracker? Yeah. So we'll hear the Nutcracker in a little bit. Because that's kind of the first thing that made the Celesta famous was when Tchaikovsky used it in his ballet called The Nutcracker. But first, we're going to listen to how it can kind of be a garnish in the background. And there's a composer that I love very much who uses Celesta a lot and Glockenspiel a lot. And his name is Gustav Mahler. We've heard some Mahler before. Mahler finished his sixth symphony, much as Mahler ever finished anything, in the early 1900s. And the celesta pops up in a a couple of the movements. And it it really is just kind of a lovely addition to really fill out color Mm -hmm. in in these sections where where it appears in this first movement. So do you want to hear some of that? Yes, please. I love that. So here it comes. I hardly heard it. I know. So yeah. quiet. It's very subtle. Yeah. This beautiful color beautiful. added. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's another section that it's in. It's very similar to the first time we heard it. It's so of a sound to me, and it reminds me of that, you know, holiday time of year. Yeah. And I wonder if that is because of the Nutcracker or because of movies that I've seen. You know, it's littered all over the place in holiday movies. So yes. I wonder if it's, you know, Santa comes down the chimney <laughs> and like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. bling, bling, yep. bling. Huh. Chalesta, cute. Okay, so then now are we going to like show where it's actually like, we'll say, quote unquote, tonic in my world? Like where it's like, boom. A little more prevalent. Yeah, there are a couple of pieces like that for sure. Um one of the things about Celesta is it's it's not, you know, tremendously uncommon, but it's also not like a flute, like you're going to have flute in your orchestral piece, or you're at the very least going to have violins, violas, cello, bass, right? It's, it's not really like that. It's definitely an addition. But sometimes because of your, because of the fact that it's being added, it gets, it does get highlighted. For instance, this time that Tchaikovsky put it in his ballet called The Nutcracker, Tchaikovsky was on his way to 
the United States to attend the opening of Carnegie Hall in New York in 1891. He stopped in Paris specifically to meet the inventor of the Celesta, Victor Moustel, because he had heard about this instrument and he wanted to know what it sounded like. And so he went to Paris, heard this uh, Celesta, then he put it in his Nutcracker Ballet in 1892 and basically made it famous, although it had been used in stage works before that, but not many. I mean, it was only invented or patented in 1886. So five years later, Tchaikovsky puts it in his ballet and then everybody starts using Celesta. So the piece in question is the very famous, or the movement in question is the very famous Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, or fairy. And uh, here, here's what that sounds like. Lil' Celesta right off the bat in, in the melodic role. So what's happening, and I do encourage you to watch the video that Jill was talking about, but there's a felt hammer, like you, similar, I guess, to what you would see in a piano or a similar concept. Felt-covered hammer hits a metal bar. That metal bar is on top of a resonating body, and it just goes from there. When I was looking at the two actual boards where the mallet hits, I'm like, well, that's basically a xylophone, or like vibes, in a box. Yep that keys hit, yeah, like a piano. yeah. And so you have the, the difference between glockenspiel, you have two mallets. The celesta, you have the ability to make, well, 10 sounds at once if you're going to play, use all 10 fingers. You yeah. Know? So it's, it's cool. It's very cool. And it's, it is, like you're saying, it's remarkable how similar they sound, but it's very different still, you know? Yeah, I think that for me, the glockenspiel is more a little more piercing because yeah. of that yep. metal on metal or metal yeah, on hard. I mean, and it kind of does depend, though, on what kind of mallet you're using. Are yeah. you using a metal mallet? Yeah, Are you course. using a plastic one? You sure, know? sure. So that's the funny thing, too, about glockenspiel is that you really can manipulate how it sounds more, you know, to a certain extent, depending on what type of surface you're hitting it with. What but, are you, you going to hit us with? Um, well, let's listen to some glockenspiel in, oh, there's some really good examples. But let's listen to it in uh, an opera from 1876. This is an, uh, an Italian opera called La Gioconda by a man named Emil Carre Ponchielli. And he included at the end of the third act, out of four, the four-act um, opera, there's a little ballet that closes out the third act. So just instruments, and it's this ballroom scene, and uh, it lasts about 10 minutes. And this is such a recognizable piece of music that people, I think, also don't really know that it maybe don't even know it comes from the classical world, but it does come from an opera. And the little ballet uh, part of it is called Dance of the Hours. So let's listen to uh, what the glockenspiel sounds like in the Ponchielli. There it, it is. Yep. There you Locking go. Spiel. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of humorous. Like, yeah. Thank you. 
what their audition needs to sound like. You know, like <laughs> if they're like, yeah, right? or if they're just like, bing, <laughs> bing, bing. Like, there you go, a little glockenspiel. Cute. Are we going to listen to the glockenspiel in the Mahler? Because that was pretty yeah, baller, so, if I don't yeah. mind. Then just <laughs> so the cool thing about that Mahler, as I mentioned, uh, he did love to use a lot of bell sounds. There's cowbells in Symphony 6. Well, there's cowbells in more than just Symphony Number no. 6. Uh, he uses triangle, glockenspiel, celesta. Um, he, he just often used bell sounds. So in 6, you not only get the celesta, you get the glockenspiel as well. And so uh, let's listen to what it sounds like in the first movement of Mahler's Sixth Symphony, the Glockenspiel. Here it comes. <laughs> Mahler. It's just, it's seriously like nine notes, but it's so perfect. Yeah. It's just, it just kind of so lightens perfect. it up too a yeah. little bit. It's like just a again? couple drops of yes. Let's yeah. hear it again. Let's hear it again. It's like it is like the garnish. Yeah, it you is. It's the lemon totally or the, the lime to the gin and tonic. Yes. Yes. And it's such a fun contrast against all those low yes. brass instruments and um, well, and they're kind of stomping around. Do, 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 do. And, and the glockenspiel like, is like, beep, beep, beep. yeah, it's yeah. just, <laughs> it's really great. It's a perfect garnish to cheers to. To scores and pours. To tonic. Tonic. To garnish. Garnish. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and cha-ching! Support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours and actually got banned from our first subreddit group, (laughs) uh, so we're still figuring that out. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Joe Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. Cheers.